We're at verse 19 of chapter 12 with the Greeks or the Hellenes who would see Jesus, verses 20 and 21. The world, the cosmos, has gone after him, and the Greeks wish to see Jesus. I recall several years ago being gently rebuked for suggesting that this desire to see Jesus was more than idle curiosity, uh, my antagonist suggesting that it is mere idle curiosity. In fact, my suggestion that it is not mere idle curiosity, then as now, is based upon the way John presents Idain Yesun, seeing Jesus, throughout this gospel. In chapter 1, verse 46, Philip says to Nathanael, Come and see, Ida, in the Greek. Chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Unless one is born from above, he cannot see, Idain, the kingdom of God. Chapter 4, verse 29, The Samaritan woman at the well says to her neighbors, Come and see, Ideta, the imperative, a man who told me all the things I have done. Chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus says to the Jews, Abraham rejoiced to see, Aden, my day, and he saw it and was glad. In each of these cases, seeing is an eschatological gift. It is a gift from above, relating the recipient to the world to come. Nathaniel sees Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel. Chapter 1, verse 49. Nicodemus sees Jesus, begins to see Jesus and the eschatological birth. Chapter 3. The woman at the well sees the prophet, the Messiah, the one who includes her and her neighbors in his transcendent water fountain because he is the Savior of the world. And Abraham saw Jesus' day in covenant relation to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Abraham saw and was glad. Now the sojourning Greeks, the Hellenistic pilgrims, ask to see Jesus. That is not a neutral term in John's Gospel. Hellenistic Jews at Jerusalem for the Passover want to see this Lamb of God. And Jesus says, the hour has come, verse 23. The hour has come. The hour for the judgment of the world, verse 31. The hour for the casting down of the ruler of the world, verse 31. The hour for being lifted up so as to draw men from all the world to himself, verse 32. The request of the Greeks signals the arrival of the hour of Christ's glorification. This crucifixion glorification brings the eschatological shift. The eschatological shift in the history of redemption through the eschatological Passover Lamb of God. The eschatological shift which is this good news going to the Greeks and the nations. What has been foreshadowed with the streaming of the Samaritans to Jesus in chapter 4. What is proleptically embodied in the request of the Greeks to see Jesus in chapter 12 is emphatically revealed at the cross in Christ's glorification 
Jew and Greek may look upon the Son of Man, may see the Son of Man by faith and be saved. That titulus was in Greek and in Hebrew and in Latin, the languages of the world. The coming of the Greeks to see Jesus, the inaugural fulfillment of Christ's good shepherd words in chapter 10 begins, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they shall hear my voice. Chapter 10, verse 16, and the Greeks say, we want to see Jesus. It is the beginning of the shift in the fullness of time. This chapter is emphatically underscoring the death of Christ. Mary anoints him for his coming death. Palm Sunday throngs welcome him in advance of his death. The coming of the Greeks signals the hour of his death. The contrast between the death life of Lazarus is an underlying theme which throws the life death of Jesus into sharper focus. The grain of wheat must die, verse 24. The Son of Man must be lifted up from the earth, verses 32 and 34. It is the death of Jesus which also throws into sharper focus the contrast between the Greeks and the Jews. The Greeks wish to see Jesus, verse 21. The Jews do not see, verse 40. The Christological focus, Mary directs attention to Jesus. The throngs with palm branches direct attention to Jesus. The Greeks direct their attention to Jesus. Even the Jews, by not seeing and not believing, direct attention to Jesus. The Christological focus now takes an ironic twist. I have referred to John's discipleship motif, the theme of the new Israel in its relationship to the Son of God. Disciples want to see Jesus, want to bear fruit, want to lose their life for Christ's sake, want to serve Jesus, want to glorify God, want to walk in the light, want to be sons and daughters of God, want to keep the words of Jesus. In this chapter, the language of discipleship is taken upon the lips of Christ himself. As the crisis of the cross approaches, as his hour of glorification draws near, Jesus himself becomes the embodiment of discipleship. He is the incarnation of discipleship. In John chapter 12, Jesus is the eschatological disciple. He is the fruit-producing grain of wheat whose death results in a resurrection harvest. He is the hater of his life in this world whose love of losing his life is eternal resurrection life. He is the servant of the Father whose work, whose diaconal work, is heavenly deacon servanthood. His chief end is to glorify his Father in heaven, a glorification confirmed by heaven's theophonic glory voice, verse 28. He is the walker in the light, not walker in the darkness, whose sojourn in the light from above reveals him as son of the light. He is the hearer and keeper of the word of the Father, whose commandments, keeping, is not self-condemning, self-judging, but whose commandment keeping is self-vindicating, self-justifying, His word-keeping is eternal life. Every element of Johannine discipleship is eschatologically fulfilled in Christ, the eschatological disciple. He is the eschatological fruit-bearer. 
He is the eschatological life loser. He is the eschatological deacon server. He is the eschatological God glorifier. He is the eschatological light walker. He is the eschatological commandment keeper. And because he is the eschatological disciple, your discipleship is fulfilled and accomplished in him. In Christ, you are the fruit bearers of the end of the age. In Christ, you are the ones who have lost your life so that you may keep it in the age to come. In Christ, you are the servants of the Lord, an eschatological diaconate in the eschatological servant. In Christ, you are those who glorify God, and his enjoyment of you is a thunderous declaration that he will glorify you with his very own doxa, his very own glory. In Christ, you are the sons and daughters of light. You no longer remain in the darkness. You are sojourning in the light of the age to come. In Christ, you are the hearers, the keepers of the commandments of the Father. Christ's keeping of the commandments means no condemnation for you at the last day and out of your love and devotion and gratitude for Him so you keep His commandments. God, you love Him and you want to obey Him. You don't despise His law. Before moving on to chapter 13, I want to point out a holistic pattern more frequently associated with the Pauline than the Johannine theology, but I want to show it, show it to you here. That it appears in John's gospel is all the more significant. In other words, what is identified with Paul is not exclusive to the great apostle. It is a veritable New Testament pattern. I direct your attention to verses 35 and 36 of this 12th chapter. For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. And the pattern is the indicative imperative. While you have the light, ekate, Greek indicative, walk, parapateta, imperative. While you ekate, have the light, indicative, believe, pistute, imperative, in the light. The Johannine Integration is, like the Pauline integration, no dichotomization of the state of the believer from his life in the world, no bifurcation of the eschatological and the ethical, no dualism in which there is a separation between the indicative and the imperative. The Johannine as well as the Pauline didactic paranatic unity the Johannine as well as the Pauline statement of fact, statement of obligation, holism, is anathema to moralism, is anathema to anthropocentrism, is anathema to situationalism, is anathema to subjectivism. But you cannot separate the indicative and the imperative. You cannot do it without attacking Jesus. These are his words in John 12. They are not Denison's words. They are not Ritterboss's words. They are not Voss's words. They are Jesus' words. And so if you're going to emphasize the imperative to the neglect of the indicative, you're attacking Jesus. And if you're going to emphasize the indicative to the neglect of the imperative, you're attacking Jesus. You're attacking the holistic balance between the biblical lifestyle of an indicative-imperative tandem. Having the light, now you do walk in the light. Having the light, now you do believe in the light. 
You cannot walk in the light without having the light. You cannot believe in the light without having a light. No imperative without the indicative. No indicative that is not joined to the imperative. No ethics without eschatology. No eschatology that is not reflected in walking eschatologically. Let's get our Bible right. And let's not batter the saints of God with imperative upon imperative upon imperative without planting them in the well of the indicative, which is the only well which will enable them to walk in the imperative. Now, John 13, where Jesus knows that his hour has come, verse 1. The imminence of the Passover, 1155, is but six days distant at Christ's anointing, 12.1. Now six days have collapsed into 24 hours, 13.1. Time, inexorable Johannine time, has ground down to imminent critical climax. From John 13.1 to John 19.42, we participate in a day-long drama. The hour of the Son of Man is 24 hours away. The scene shift which marks the opening of chapter 13 is confirmed in verse 2 by the phrase, During Supper. This supper is not a continuation of the supper of chapter 12, for that supper is located in Bethany, and this supper is located in Jerusalem, as the subsequent chapters make clear. This supper is further distinguished from the supper in chapter 12 in that it is a reverse anointing. Jesus the object in chapter 12, Jesus the subject in chapter 13. His feet are wiped in chapter 12, he wipes the feet in chapter 13. Hence chapter 13 finds Jesus and his disciples in a supper room from which they depart in chapter 1431 in order to enter a garden beyond the brook Kidron, chapter 18, 1. The remarks of chapters 15 to 17 are made before leaving the supper room completely, much as people frequently linger to talk before they go out the door, ask any sexton or janitor in a church. Or the remarks of 15 to 17 are made on the way to the garden. We are reading about the events of Monday, Thursday, the Thursday before Good Friday. Monday from the Middle English word monde, reflecting the Latin mandatum novum, new commandment in verse 34, announced on the night Jesus washed his disciples' feet, the night before his crucifixion. In many Christian churches, Monday, Thursday is the traditional occasion for the celebration of the Lord's Supper during Holy Week. It was the occasion in my childhood for the celebration of the Lord's Supper during Holy Week. I never knew celebration of the Lord's Supper on Good Friday until I came into Dutch circles. That doesn't make it wrong. I'm just simply saying I have no experience of it until I entered those circles. For me, the Last Supper and Holy Week was always the night in which the Last Supper was observed. As such, together with Good Friday, 
it has inspired some of the great music in the Christian church. John Stainer's Crucifixion, Theodore Dubois' Seven Last Words, Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, not to mention the St. John Passion, Ludwig von Beethoven's Christ on the Mount of Olives with his hair-raising arrest scene, and Richard Wagner's Good Friday Spell from the opera Parsifal, to mention only a few. Chapters 13 to 17 are popularly called the Farewell Discourse of Jesus. While not completely accurate, since the foot-washing narrative introduces Christ's last words to his disciples, nevertheless, these chapters are a well-defined unit. Malacuzil has detected the markers which set chapters 13 to 17 apart. The inclusio brackets, 13.1 with 17.24.26, you see the having loved and the he loved. 13.1 are linked with love and you love, 17.26. And strengthening the inclusios are the terms father, 13.1 with 17.24 and 25, and the term cosmos or world in 13.1 with 17.24 and 25. Again, I've lined those out on your sheet. In other words, the vocabulary of the inauguration of Christ's farewell encounter with his disciples in chapter 13 concludes Christ's farewell remarks to his disciples in chapter 17. This is a self-contained unit. We are struck by the difference between the Last Supper here in John 13 and the Last Supper recorded by the Synoptic Gospels. There is no bread nor cup. There is no covenant formula eschatologically accomplished in the divided or broken body and blood of this covenant victim. There is rather a nondescript supper, an act of Christ unparalleled in the synoptics, namely the foot washing, and a series of lengthy speeches. In fact, the longest speech in any of the Gospels, longer even than the Sermon on the Mount. John's theology of act and discourse continues to the very end. In fact, Christ's love for his own, ace telos to the end, 13.1, foreshadows the seventh and last word from the cross, tetelestai, it is ended, it is finished, 19.30. The end which begins in 13.1 is the end which will conclude in 19.30 upon the cross. Why this marked difference between Monday Thursday in John's Gospel and Monday Thursday in the Synoptic Gospels. Is John ignorant of the Synoptic tradition? Does John not know that Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it? Liberal fundamentalists argue this way. Oh yes, there are liberal fundamentalists, believe me. John's tradition is different because the Johannine community is different. Liberal fundamentalists are so pathetic so tragically blind to the obvious, so jaded by their unbelieving presuppositions. John's tradition is unique because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he provides a portrait of Jesus in the supper room, which is consistent with his gospel portrait of Jesus. As his last act with his disciples, Jesus changes places with them. I've been telling you, that John shows Jesus as the eschatological disciple, and now he virtually embodies it by changing places with them. That's the reason John tells you this story. As his last act with his disciples, Jesus makes himself their servant. 
as his farewell act to his disciples, Jesus incarnates discipleship in front of them at their very feet. And then he helps them to understand discipleship. He helps them understand discipleship with a parting discourse so poignant, so sweet, so perfectly accommodated to their need to become servants that when it is finished, when this act of humiliation is ended, they will understand how to serve in remembering what he did and what he said. They will do this. They will serve. They will do this in remembrance of him. Francis Maloney has identified yet another structuring device in this chapter. He points out that the Amen, Amen, truly, truly formula occurs in John 13 more frequently than in any other chapter in this gospel. On four occasions, Jesus enforces the duplicate verity, verse 16, 20, 21, and 38, truly, truly, verily, verily. Maloney takes his cue from this phenomena to observe that the verily, verily formula stands at the end of three distinct sections of the chapter. Verses 1 to 16, Maloney argues verse 17 closes the first unit, focus upon the dialogue with Peter who will deny Christ. Verses 21 to 38, focus upon the dialogue about Judas Iscariot who will, be, who will betray Christ. You will notice that this section, 21 to 38, also begins with a verily, verily, begins and ends with a verily, verily. We have an inclusio around the last unit. And sandwiched between, sandwiched between the servant and his denier, the servant and his betrayer, is the sovereign servant who reveals himself as ego eimi, I am. Verse 19, the epiphonic I am. The servant who acts is the servant who confronts, is the servant who is self-existent. In other words, the Johannine Christology finds expression in the supreme drama of servanthood. Humiliation, rejection, denial, betrayal. But this one humiliated, this one rejected, this one denied, this one betrayed, is God. If our minds range back to Isaiah's emotive portrait of the suffering servant, the so-called Abed Yahweh, in Isaiah 53, we are not far from the mind of John, though the beloved apostle does not cite Isaiah 53, but see 12:38 for a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. John declares that the mystery of the servant of the Lord is that he is the Lord, the servant. Could Isaiah project God the Son as Abed Yahweh, servant of the Lord? Could Isaiah conceive God himself incarnate in the humiliation of the servant songs? John could. John does because Jesus acts as a servant and projects his very own suffering. The hands of this servant, washing, wiping toes, feet, heels, Ankles, these hands will be nailed, spiked, impaled together with his wounded ankles, his bruised heels. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that my Savior would bend the knee to cleanse and caress my feet, that my Savior would rise to his feet to sit and sup with me. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, 
that my Savior would bow down and rise up for me. John 13 is an enacted symbol. It is an enacted symbol of the death and resurrection of the I Am. Humiliation and exaltation are dramatized in Christ's actions before his disciples. Verse 1, in fact, foreshadows the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus in its vocabulary. The feast of Passover is a feast of deliverance through the blood of a substitute. The hour of Jesus is the hour of his glorification in being lifted up from the earth. His departure out of the world is his surrender of his spirit to death. His love for his own is intimately connected with that which he must finish on their behalf. In his end is their beginning. But this prototypical passion drama has overtones which echo and re-echo the cosmic crisis of this hour. The devil has been working from below an anti-intrusionary insinuation. Is Satan capturing one who has descended below to sit in hellish places? Is the intrusion from below an enticement to identify, to participate in the Antichrist? Is there an eruption of the kingdom of darkness in the temporal arena, a veritable anti-kingdom with its devilish anti-eschatology? Is there an unclean thing in this arena? An unclean devil ally whose part, whose portion is outside. One covenanted with Satan, shut out from the bosom of Jesus, a servant of the ruler of this world because he goes out. He leaves the supper. He departs into the darkness. Look at verse 30. And so Judas went out and it was night. It was night. John doesn't miss a trick. From the light of the supper room, Jesus goes out into the night, into the darkness, into the arena of Satan, his king and prince, into the hellish curse of black betrayal, the intrusion of anti-eschatology, the anti-eschatology of malediction, Ebed Satan, not Ebed Yahweh. The tentacles of this diabolic arena insinuate themselves into the arena of the Son of Man? Is there a hint of darkness in Peter's never shall you wash my feet, verse 8, but the darkness is swallowed up in light. Lord, not my feet only, but also my head and my hands, verse 9. But the light dims as the disciples grope with the clouds of unknowing, the bewilderment of betrayal. Who is it, Lord, verse 25? And the blackness rushes out once more. Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Verses 37 and 38. The darkness which threatens to envelop Peter, to possess him, even as it possesses Judas Iscariot, this darkness will not be overcome until the risen pastor says three times, Simon Peter, lovest thou me? The hour of darkness and the power thereof. The act of Jesus in bathing his disciples' feet is the act of a slave. This role reversal is consistent with the incarnational Christology of the gospel. God becomes man. 
Shepherd becomes lamb. Master becomes slave. But the Christological kenosis, the Christological emptying, the emptying of his glory, the setting aside of his prerogatives, this humiliation in chapter 13 prophesies its own eschatological abnegation. Jesus lays aside his garments. Notice verse 4. Exposed to shame, naked before his servants, Jesus incarnates the shame, incarnates the servanthood for the sake of accomplishing his, for his own what they could not accomplish for themselves. Will he once more put off his garments as he approaches the cross? Will he once more be exposed naked to shame as he hangs upon that tree suspended between earth and heaven? Will he lay down his life even as he lays down his garments so as to perfectly, finally, completely incarnate humiliation, rejection, renunciation? Yes, he will. This God-man, this shepherd lamb, this master slave, he will endure the contradiction of ages for you, for his loved ones, for his little children, that you who are men may come to God, that you who are lambs may come to the shepherd, that you are who are slaves may come to the Lord, that you who are surrounded by the prince of darkness and the hour of his power may come to the light. His shame in order to reverse your shame. His nakedness in order to reverse your exposure to the wrath of God, to cover you with the garments of a new creation. His slavery, in order to reverse your bondage to this present evil age. Jesus laid aside his garments and washed his disciples clean, so that they might have part with him. Verse 8, the Greek meros, part in verse 8, is conformity to that which Christ is enacting. Having part with Christ and in Christ is being conformed to his death, his shame, his humiliation. The drama of chapter 13 is that Jesus is making his own participants by prolepsis in his crucifixion. The so-called enacted parable here is in fact an anticipation realization paradigm. Jesus anticipates here what he will realize in chapter 19. But he also anticipates in chapter 13 what he will realize in chapter 20. The prolepsis of his passion is inseparably united to the prolepsis of his resurrection. Do you see that phrase in verse 12? Taking his garments. Elabain. Elabain from Lambano. To take, to receive. Now, chapter 10, verse 17. I lay down my life. Same Greek word as laid aside his garment in chapter 13, verse 4. That I may take it again. Labo. From Lambano. And chapter 10, verse 18. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Labain. From Lambano. As Jesus clothes himself again after his humiliation, so he will dress himself anew in the garments of his resurrected flesh on the third day. Jesus becomes the incarnation of humiliation and shame so that he may become the demonstration of exaltation and justification through his resurrection. He takes up his life for you that his loved ones may be raised up together with him that his lambs may rise to the land where there is no more death, that those enslaved to him, his servants, may bow before his feet in the resurrection glory land 
forever and ever and ever. The language that Jesus uses here, the language that John uses to describe Jesus' act here, is the language of death and resurrection. He lays aside his life that he may take it up again. As he lays aside that garment that he may take it up again. Now, there are several issues which arise from the foot washing which require comment. Why does Jesus say in verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. The custom of the time was for a traveler to bathe at home before setting out on a journey. Upon arrival at his destination, the host saw to it that his feet were washed. There was no need to wash the entire body again. Jesus' act of hospitality is complete cleansing, though, of course, Judas remains unclean, though washed. This is not sacramental imagery, in spite of commentators who leap to baptistic conclusions whenever they find water in a text in the New Testament. The second issue involves the once-and-for-all character of Christ's act versus the over-and-again imitation of Christ's act. Some Christian groups practice foot washing as a part of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. These groups point to John 13, verses 14, 15, and 17 in order to proof-text their practice. The precise status questionis, the precise state of the question, is whether an act singularly prophetic of an unrepeatable paradigm, namely the death and resurrection of Christ, is intended to be rehearsed on account of language such as, you also ought to wash one another's feet, and I give you an example. The biblical theological case against continuing foot washing arises from the once and for all nature of what Christ intends by his act. If he dies once and for all, is raised from the dead once and for all, then he proleptically lays aside his garments, and when he proleptically takes up his garments again, he is enacting a service which can only be performed by him once and for all. The Greek word upadigma, which means example, therefore means humble service. It does not mean actual service. Foot washing. As one commentator notes, it is not physical washing of feet that is required by Jesus, but a way of living similar to that which Jesus has just demonstrated. It is humble service. It is not some kind of exemplarism or some kind of moralistic repetitionism. The custom of foot washing is not required by the text, but I add I respect the liberty of groups to practice this as a harmless ritual. Don't do it to me, but if you think that's what you want to do and you think you should do that, then by all means I grant you the liberty to do it. We have considered this chapter as foreshadowing the death and resurrection of Christ. We have further considered this chapter as a cosmic conflict between the one who has come down from above, even to washing his disciples' feet, 
and the antithetical powers of darkness represented in Judas, servant of Satan, and even Peter, ambiguous if not impetuous, servant of Christ. But we must not leave this chapter without pausing to contemplate a little bit of heaven. The main characters of this enacted parable are Christ and his disciples. One disciple is a dark character. One disciple is a nebulous character overshadowed by his own ambivalence. But one disciple shines in his character. He shines because he reclines, leaning upon Jesus' breast. The position of the beloved disciple in the supper room, verses 23 and 25, is the position of intimacy, precious, dependent intimacy. We must not miss the significance of John's portrait of himself here. Without naming himself, speaking out only here in the entire gospel, John takes his position near to the heart of Jesus. It is upon the bosom of his Lord that the beloved disciple leans, on the bosom of the one who is in the bosom, the bosom of the Father. Chapter 1, verse 18. The beloved disciple positioned in relation to the Son as the Son is positioned relationally to his Father. Here is a Johannine imitatio Christi, imitation of Christ. With every guarantee of the creator-creature distinction, nonetheless, the disciple whom Jesus loved is bosom-leaning, an intimacy which reflects the bosom-dwelling of the Son who is loved by his Father. Is heaven any less than the arena where the beloved of Christ, the loved ones of Jesus, lie nestled in the bosom of Abraham, recline upon the breast of the Almighty? Is faith which itself has tasted the sweetness of heaven even now, any less intimate, any less dependent, any less content with leaning on Jesus. The portrait of John leaning on Jesus' breast is the portrait of those who love leaning on Jesus. The portrait of those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb so as to lean on Jesus The portrait of those who remain, who stay, leaning upon Jesus. The portrait of those who have come out of the darkness to lean upon Jesus. Lean back, lean back upon the breast of Jesus and let him caress you. Let him enfold you. Let him delight in your, your leaning upon him. He will cradle your head. He will cradle your head upon his breast forever and forever and forever. We have examined the relationship of Christ to his disciples, especially Peter, John, and Judas. We have examined the relationship of the disciples to Jesus. This interrelationship between Christ and the disciples 
is the heart of chapter 13 and will be the continuing theme through chapter 17. In other words, the farewell act on behalf of the disciples introduces the farewell discourses to the disciples. Christ and the disciples, the disciples and Christ. Yet discipleship is frequently flattened out to principles of behavior derived in proof text fashion from discipleship passages of the Bible. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship is in fact neither about Christ nor about discipleship. It is about existential self-affirmation on the brink of religionless Christianity. Do not forget, brothers and sisters, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the John the Baptist to the death of God theologians. Ronald Gregor Smith, Thomas J.J. Altizer, Gabriel Vahanian, all were baptized into the system of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer's post-Christian discipleship costs us the discipleship of the Gospels of Orthodox Christianity. His letters and papers from from prison were about a religionless Christianity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the antithesis of Orthodox Christianity. Read Cornelius Van Til's superb review of Bonhoeffer's theology in the Westminster Theological Journal for May of 1972. Besides Bonhoeffer, every Christian bookstore contains discipleship discipleship texts which are extractive, extracting principles for the believer to imitate. I would like to suggest that what Christ is doing in John 13 is becoming the eschatological disciple himself. If discipleship is a relational category, God himself will have to incarnate it. He will have to incarnate love for God, trust in God, obedience to God, service to God, knowledge, intimate knowledge of God. If discipleship is an incarnational relationship, It has become, in the incarnation of God, the Son, an eschatological dynamic. The new commandment of John 13, 34 is an eschatological reality. As the love of God has eschatologically broken into history in the Son, so those who have part in the Son have become participants in the eschatological love of God in Christ Jesus. It is not that love for one another is new, What is new is that one another love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in union with those participating in that love has come down from above. It has intruded itself into the fullness of time. This horizontal love is a participation in vertical love. Loving one another is already enjoying the love for one another yet to be revealed perfectly in glory. Following Jesus is already sojourning upon the pilgrimage yet to be consummated in heaven. Heavenly discipleship has been eschatologically realized in the final disciple, Jesus Christ, who girds himself as a servant disciple of sinful men and women in order that by participating in him, they may live as his disciples now and forevermore. From John chapter 13, discipleship becomes an eschatological reality. Christ has become disciple to us. He has washed our feet. Live that way. Now, on your outline for John 13, if you're interested in the right answers, 
The overall structure of John 13 to 17 is a chiasm. You can see it in the little topical structure. But there's also an inclusio there uh, from 13.1 to 17.1, which ties the whole unit together. These structural clues are truly, truly in each case, verses 1 to 17, verses 18 to 20, verses 21 to 38, the truly, truly, or verily, verily. And you will notice NB, that's verse 21, where you have the bracketed inclusio of the last unit of that section. The section on interplay is an attempt to show you the interaction between Peter and Jesus on the left-hand side, Jesus at the center as the I am, and Judas and Jesus on the right-hand side with Peter in parenthesis as a kind of shadow of Judas, an ambiguous shadow. That ambiguity will not be removed until John 21. Do you have any questions or comments? I'll be glad to uh, field any remarks that you may have. David? Uh, the, the, the question is whether uh, the question is whether all the characters in John 12, 1 to 8 are involved in uh, uh, proleptically or shall we say um, uh, <clears throat> uh, representatively in her act of devotion. I don't have any problem with that thinking. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I would follow you on this uh, you know, diversity and uh, unity suggestion. But as I did suggest, every one of them is content with Jesus in their particular role in in that scene. And that means that the household as a whole, all of that household, is content to be with Jesus in the state of servanthood and uh, pacification and humiliation. So, yes, I wouldn't object to seeing the whole household uh, behind or represented in what she's doing. Any other questions or comments? All right, we have a spring break, and then we will return to uh, proceed with chapters 14 and following. Enjoy your week off. I will.